Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the president's proposed budget and what it could mean for the local SNAP food program. A local political expert fills us in on his recent trip to Jerusalem for a democracy and peace conference. And MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm goes one-on-one with Gopher AD Mark Coyle. But first, it was a wild week at the Minnesota legislature as lawmakers missed their deadline for finishing the state budget and Governor Mark Dayton called a special session. MNN's Bill Werner filed this report. Not promising for sure. Governor Mark Dayton and Republicans went into the last days before Monday's adjournment deadline with deep differences, the biggest over tax cuts. Republicans said they'd already dropped their demands halfway to the governor's position and were not going any further. Leave that money out there with Minnesotans and let them invest it in their family and let them invest it in their small business. Um, It is our top priority, and I don't think the governor can ask us to go beyond halfway. The governor responded the budget couldn't handle tax cuts, the size Republicans wanted, plus fund additional transportation projects that both sides agreed are needed. I'm not going to leave the state of Minnesota in the kind of predicament that I inherited in 2011. The budget and the tax cut has to be fiscally responsible. The governor, legislative leaders, and their key advisors went into around-the-clock closed-door negotiations. Rumors of a deal flew around the Capitol. Citizens gave up $500 million, about 40% of the tax bill, back to the governor and the Democrats so they can uh, spend it. And that should be, that should suffice. But there was no word of an actual agreement as the hours ticked down towards Monday's adjournment deadline. I'm sure uh, in the end, uh, as it always does, that it'll get resolved, but hopefully it won't be dragged out for the whole month of June. State employee union members converged on the Capitol, carrying signs reading, AFSME is watching. Our members are angry that uh, that uh, the Republican majorities uh, continue to use public workers as punching bags. Republicans got tentative agreements with the governor on several bills and passed them through the House and Senate, hoping Dayton would sign them, even as leaders continued closed-door negotiations on the remaining major portions of the state budget. We're pretty sure the vote should should tip him over the edge if he hasn't committed yet. Monday night, a scant 45 minutes before the deadline for the legislature to adjourn its regular session, Governor Mark Dayton and Republican leaders broke their self-imposed cone of silence. Well, uh, good evening. It's 11.15 on the last night of session. I think uh, we have been working uh, very hard over the last uh, 36 to 48 hours to put together an agreement on a state budget. Uh, I think that we have tentatively reached that agreement. Um, The governor has agreed to call us back in for a special session starting at 12.01 tonight. Um, I want to just personally thank the governor uh, for and his staff for the work that we've done over the course of the last two or three days. Uh, I think it really represents true compromise. We're happy with that. Uh, and I'll let the senator say a few comments as well. Yeah, I'm grateful that we have a deal. Uh, it was a deal that we finished at, uh, just a few minutes ago. We reached across the table from each other and shook hands. It's how politics should work in Minnesota. It worked extremely well. It wasn't easy. Uh, I think we all knew we had to give up something, which is always what happens, uh, and then get something. But in the end, when that happens, uh, Minnesota wins, and uh, tonight I really believe Minnesota won it. But that will turn it over to the governor. Well, I would uh, concur with what the leaders just said. We worked very hard. We worked uh, very well together. It's Obviously, we have uh, very real differences, and 
So there's been a lot of give and take and people giving up what they want and accepting what they don't want. Uh, but you, you've negotiated in good faith, you and your staffs and other leaders, and appreciate that. And I would agree, we've, uh, we've got the framework. We still have some details to work out with uh, several of the bills, but with the uh, just 1201 to 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning, that uh, that should be t hopefully time to get things re resolved. It was not enough time, unfortunately, for the governor and legislative leaders. The governor has a chance to be a profile and courage by vetoing that bill. Interest groups converged on the Capitol, while lawmakers struggled to dot a lot of I's and cross many, many T's on details of the budget bills, then wait for the reviser's office to do final drafts and double and triple check for no mistakes. Meanwhile, not surprisingly, politics started seeping in. Republicans at the governor's demand had pulled out of one of the budget bills, a controversial measure to override Minneapolis and St. Paul's family medical leave ordinance, saying they'd send it to the governor in a separate bill. But they tried to force Dayton's hand by attaching several riders to that legislation, including a state employee pension measure. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. There's four things in that bill that we think he would really like. There's one thing in that bill that we think is important. Uh, in the end, the governor's going to have to decide. I've made it clear I'll veto a bill that has preemption. That issue and others mucked things up as lawmakers tried to make progress on a pile of major bills so they could finish the special session by 7 a.m. Wednesday morning. The target agreed on with the governor. It didn't happen. What is your intention at 7.01 a.m. today? Do you plan to abide by the agreement or break the agreement? There's one person who gets to call a special session, and I believe that that's the governor of the state of Minnesota, and I believe that there's only one group that can close a special session and adjourn a special session, and that is the legislature. There were calls to hit the reset button. I think it's just time to adjourn and everybody should go home and we should sit down with the governor probably and, and maybe cooler heads will prevail. But lawmakers pushed through the final bills in fits and starts over a period of three days. Never seen such bad management in all the years I've been here. We're still working through a few uh, bumps in the road. I have been asked to have only one prayer, and that is that we end today. So, <laughs> can I get an amen on that? <laughs> Finally, late Thursday night, the final pieces of the legislative puzzle were ready to go. The complex health and human services funding bill and a $988 million bonding bill, which passed by an almost stunningly strong vote in the Minnesota House. This is absolutely the fastest and the biggest vote. But, you know, we work together. We work together to build this bill. It took a while. There's a lot of a lot of work to put it together and uh, to get the uh, the number of votes that were there. But you do a good bill, you get support. And then it was finally time for lawmakers to go home. The motion prevails, and this special session is adjourned. Signy die. House Speaker Kurt Dowd says Republicans accomplished what they set out to accomplish. The largest amount of tax relief in 20 years. We have a historic amount of road and bridge money. In fact, it's, it's the largest transportation increase without a gas tax in state history. Republicans and the governor both wanted to spend more money than is in the transportation budget, but they couldn't agree how to pay for it. With Republicans in control of the House and the Senate, these may be the best budgets we're able to get through. House Minority Leader Melissa Hortman Democrats hope to be in a different position after the next election. Scott? As always, we'll stay tuned. Thank you for that report, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this.
We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play, like, a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do, like, that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. President Donald Trump's proposed budget includes making significant cuts to the SNAP food program, which helps feed thousands of Minnesota families. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. President Trump is proposing a nearly 30 percent cut to the SNAP food program, which more people refer to as food stamps. Joining me now to discuss the proposed cuts is Colleen Moriarty, Executive Director of Hunger Solutions Minnesota. Colleen, what was your first thought when you heard about these proposed cuts? Well, first of all, I think that I watched um, some of the rollout for the budget, and it's clear to me that they, the current administration doesn't really have a handle on exactly what the SNAP program does. Um, in Minnesota, it would mean about 120,000 people would lose benefits. These are the poorest people in our state. Most people don't stay on the program for longer than about nine months to get, their set, get themselves back on the ground. But there are those who are disabled and elderly, and his proposal um, truly is an attack on the elderly because it eliminates the lowest uh, recipients uh, lowest, um, uh, uh, in, the, in the recipient in the grant category. And that is the elderly. Sometimes, you know, because they're living alone um, and they have such a low income that they receive $16 to $25, and that eliminates them. So he's directly attacking the elderly. Um, uh, it would mean about 120,000 people in this state would have nowhere else to turn for food. We need to remember that this is a food program. You can't buy anything but food with your SNAP grant. Um, it's a benefit from the federal government. Most of these people have worked hard all their lives. You know, this got me thinking, too, uh, you know, worst-case scenario that this funding is pulled that's going to put a lot of pressure on the state's 300-plus uh, food shelves, correct? Oh, absolutely. And the system really cannot, will not be able to absorb it. So I don't know what we will do because there just isn't, there isn't enough food in the emergency food system in the food shelters, in the food shelves and in the feeding programs to be able to meet the need. Um, but I, you know, their, their heartless approach towards cutting the poorest of the poor and the working poor, some of whom are the very people who voted for him. You know, we saw in 2008 that it isn't just those people, whoever that is. It's your neighbors. It's people in your family. It's people who lost their jobs. Um, The program expands when the economy needs it and retracts. But the fact of the matter is that 
the poorest people in our country have not be able to, been able to respond um, positively to the economic um, growth that we've seen in the last several years. They have not been benefited by that. They still are just barely surviving. I see that the White House says it's trying to get more able-bodied people off the program uh, back into working, but you had mentioned earlier in this conversation that a majority of folks that are on the SNAP program, A, they're the elderly, uh, who, who perhaps may be disabled, uh, retired, and then B, a lot of people on the SNAP program are working families. Is that true, Colleen? That is very true. You know, we lost the waiver for, um, there was a waiver during the depths of the reception um, that, that enabled people to uh, extend benefits for able-bodied adults and others who were having just, you know, a horrendous time finding employment. But we lost that waiver in 2013, and we, because our uh, employment shrunk, and we have worked tirelessly with the state, with employers, with DEED, and others to assure that every person who can is working. So it's not a handout. It's just it is a benefit to many people who have worked all their lives, and it is a way for them to make it through the month. So the the that casual kind of reference to the fact that people are on this program so they can loll around and not work is just not true. It's not true. It's never been true. But particularly now with all the reforms, it is not true. And it's just another case of this administration and their cruelty. And, you know, too, I, I, I think it's important to point out to folks that the, the SNAP funding, we're not, we're not talking about several hundred dollars a month here for food, correct? No. Um, you know, the benefit is judged on the. And the other thing is, is that for large families, he's also proposing that their benefits be cut. So evidently, if you have more mouths to feed, he wants to eliminate you. And if you're single and vulnerable and a senior, he wants to eliminate your access to food. So I don't know who it is that he feels uh, or that his administration feels is deserving of the program, but it's it's just not the case. Mo- many people who are on the SNAP program are cobbling together two or three jobs sometimes to be able to make it. And like I say, most people don't stay on longer than nine months. It's a program to give them a hand up and not a handout. Thanks again to my guest, Colleen Moriarty, Executive Director of Hunger Solutions Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. 
It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Start it off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed, could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Hamlin University political science professor David Schultz recently returned from an international conference in Jerusalem, Israel, sponsored by the Africa Center for Peace and Democracy and the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace. I recently chatted with the professor about the conference and why it matters in Minnesota. The theme of the conference was to discuss um, democracy in economic development in, in Africa. And my role was to sort of give an opening paper talking about what we know about the relationship between, well, as the conference indicated, between economic development and how it promotes democracy and how economics is really related to sort of the, the political systems. And the reason why I attended um, was that many of the countries that were in attendance were also countries that have large immigrant populations in Minnesota. Um, as we know, over the last you know, generation or so, we've had people coming in from places such as Somalia and Ethiopia and elsewhere. So this is an opportunity to sort of um, talk about some of the issues that are important in Africa and how they relate back to uh, Minnesota and the United States. And specifically, Professor, what kinds of things did you learn while you were there that, uh, that may actually impact some of the folks that are here in Minnesota? Well, there's no question the fact that, that the, the failure for many of the African countries to promote democracy and to stabilize um, is rooted in a variety of economic problems. That, for the most part, many of the countries in Africa um, are, are, are relatively poor. Um, they face significant problems in terms of how the, the wealth and income is not well distributed. And that has generated sort of two things. One, or three things actually. One, it has made it difficult for democracy to flourish. Second, it has produced a significant um, political um, uprisings in many of these countries where it's has produced both immigration to Minnesota and across the United States, but three, it becomes a, a petri dish or almost a fertile ground for terrorism to start to emerge. And so that some of the issues that we're seeing in terms of Minnesota where there's concerns about, for example, um, whether or not um, ISIS is using some of the populations in Minnesota as recruitment grounds all ties back to some of the economic instability and lack of democracy back in Africa. In terms of the current state of American democracy, what kind of an impact is that having? Is that something that was addressed during the, your time at the conference? Yes, in a couple of different ways. First, in the sense that Africa does not seem to be on the agenda at this point for the Trump administration. 
and that becomes a difficult becomes a difficult issue for these countries that that really do need some of the foreign aid, do need some of the support um, from the United States in order to be able to stabilize economically and then again build democracies, and that will have again impacts in terms of addressing terrorism. And so I think they're concerned in terms of that area first, just how the United States seems to be ignoring them. Um, but second, I think one of the things that I learned when I was over in Jerusalem is the general apprehension that many foreign governments have regarding the United States under under the Trump presidency. And by that specifically, it is no clear focus in terms of what the Trump foreign policy really means. That yes, he says uh, he wants to make America great again, he wants America first, but it's not clear to them what it means. Does that mean that he's unwilling to, to help and support Africa, that he doesn't care about um, what is, for example, the, the, the rise of terrorism and flourishing of terrorism or the instability of many of the, of the countries in Africa? Um, what does it exactly mean? So what they're hoping for and looking for is some clear direction in terms of signals from the Trump administration. And this is especially interesting given the fact that I was in Jerusalem and Israel because um, on Trump's first trip abroad, which is going to come later this week, one of the countries on his first trip abroad is, is to Jerusalem, is to Israel. And they are especially interested in finding out um, where the Trump administration is. And one example is the fact that the Syrian regime with Assad, um, which is right, right on the right on the border with Israel, um, they're arch enemies, and Assad is supported by Putin in the Russian Federation. And several of them asked me questions in terms of, well, how do you think the alleged relationship between between the Trump administration and the Russian Federation will affect our border security with Syria. And those are the kind of questions that I think they're looking to find answers to. So I think if I could sort of summarize uh, in many ways the, the questions that, the, that Israel and these African states had towards the Trump administration is a question mark. Question mark in the sense of what does the administration stand for? Are you going to be there for us? And if so, how? I'm sure that the idea that there is uncertainty abroad wasn't terribly surprising to you, but I'm wondering, coming away from the conference, what was what was the most surprising thing that you walked away from it with? The most important thing that I walked away from um, is the fact that that we, we have we have a continent, um, you know, with you know with you know with you know you know nearly sixty countries, um, all with their own individual sort of personalities, individual needs. And many of them are still looking to the United States for leadership, looking to the United States for help, and really do want to have closer relationships. And I think that's one of the messages that's out there, is that, that they share common concerns. They want to build their economies. They want to be better trading partners. They realize that they face problems in terms of terrorism, um, domestic insecurity, and they want to stabilize their governments. So in many ways, we do share uh, very powerful um, interests and very similar concerns with these countries. And again, they're looking. They're looking for, if I can use the metaphor here, for the bridges to be built between the United States um, and their own countries. Thank you to my guest, Hamlin University political science professor David Schultz. Minnesota Matters will return after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. 
You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for, right? But we gave you a shot anyway, and since then you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It was one year ago next week that Mark Coyle took over as athletic director at the University of Minnesota. It's been an eventful year for the Golden Gophers, including high marks on five Big Ten championships. But there were also some times of crisis within the department. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm, who's also the radio voice of the Gophers, sat down with Coyle during this past week's Gopher road trip, which featured Coyle and coaches touring the southern part of Minnesota. Well, Mark Coyle, we're in the middle of a bus tour, so fittingly... We're chatting in the back of the bus as we head to Redwood Falls as we start the last day of this three-day trip. We're approaching your one-year anniversary of job as athletic director at the University of Minnesota. First of all, good to see you. And two, uh, what do you think of your year one here? You know, I can tell you it's hard to believe it's already been one year. But, you know, when I look back at this past year, uh, you know, I'm just grateful. You know, if you remember a year ago when I was hired, I talked about how this was a dream job for me, a destination for me and my family. And, and nothing has changed. And we're so grateful. And it's been a great learning experience. And I look forward to more positive things happening for our program. It's been a lot of success on the competition field. I mean, there's been Big Ten titles. There's been uh, national championship appearances. There's been Final Fours and Frozen Fours and all of that. Um, and there's been academic uh, success as well. Kind of take us through your thoughts on, on those things and uh, how important they are. I mean, that's really the backbone of, of the goal, right? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. You know, I, I tell people, and I don't apologize for this, I'm a very competitive person, and I want to win and compete at the highest level. And obviously we're excited about the five Big Ten championships the final four appearances by you know our volleyball program women's hockey and, and so forth but you know academically uh, that's the most important thing we do and, and we're very proud of the fact that our student athletes for four straight years have been above a 3.2 uh, we're the highest rated public institution in the country with respect to student athlete academic success and, and that's our goal is to make sure that when when our students leave our program they're ready to go out and contribute to this great state and, and make it better for all of us the first year has not been without challenges and a few things along the way that you've had to manage. I mean, crisis management has been a couple of uh, things. In fact, I remember the first day on the job was the first day of the road trip last year for you. I think it was the first day of June, and uh, the wrestling situation was unfolding literally as you were getting to town. You had to make a tough decision. Um, kind of take me through uh, how hard that was uh, to jump into that fray right away and, and how you think the wrestling program has advanced from that to where they are now. Well, you know, I, I remember after that first day, my wife called me. She was back in Syracuse still with our with our kids and, and she called me and she was falling in on the news and said wow what a tough day you know just take one day at a time and I remember I said back to her right now it's one step at a time you know and, and uh, you know I'm so grateful for uh, for coach Egham you know he's done a wonderful job and you know I, I know Jay Robinson I worked with Jay when I was here before and, and obviously he had a distinguished career with the national championships and and really build our program and there's no doubt that coach Egham has learned from coach Robinson is going to take this program forward in a new direction we're just grateful for Brandon's hard work. 
Now, uh, the other uh, one of the other situations certainly was uh, the bowl game. December was not a fun month, I'm sure, for you. So many different challenges, so many different things going on. You got through it. You have a new football coach. What did you learn from that? What do you take from that? And what do you think the future is with the football program? We don't, Mike, if, if you remember when we made the decision to make a change in football, you know, I talked about I don't take that decision lightly. You know, that impacts a lot of people, a lot of really good people, you know, people who worked hard, people who put in a great foundation for our program and we're thankful for everything they did. Uh, but I just felt like we needed a sense of urgency with our football program and, and we needed a jolt of energy. And, and I think, uh, you know, PJ, when, when we made the change, I remember telling President Kaler there's one person we got to go get and it's PJ Fleck and uh, I can tell you PJ has done nothing uh, that disappointed me at all he has been full of energy he has connected our team he's connected our department he's connected our state and I really feel comfortable and confident about the future of our football program how much did it take to to reacclimate to Minnesota uh, you had been here for a while how much more comfortable here on uh, let's say day one of year two are you than day one of year one so to speak well, you know, the, the great thing about Minnesota is we have great people here. Uh, we have great people in the state, but we have great people in our department. And, and I can tell you this year it's a lot easier when I have a chance to stand up and I can actually tell you the people I know them. You know, last year I was just introducing people, and now I know them. You know, I, I know you much better, had a chance to spend time with you and all of our staff and coaches. And, you know, it's, it's been, uh, you know, a, a turbulent year. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, we've learned a lot. We've been through a lot. Uh, but I can't tell you how thankful I am for our staff, uh, for our coaches, our fans, and how they welcome me and my family back to Minnesota and, and I just hope people know how proud we are to be the athletic director at the University of Minnesota. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much and go Gophers. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.